0: Welcome to the Invino Fab podcast. I'm Laura.
1: And I'm Patrice.
0: In Vino Fabulum means in wine story, and there are so many tales that need to be told about women from all walks of life and their communities, paired with wine, of course. The In Vino Fab pod is a place to learn and a space to share stories about work, interests, passion projects, issues, and random wine facts. All right. Welcome back to another In Vino Fab. We have a returning guest, Patrice. Uh, with us today, we have Kristen Rowe. Welcome. Hello. How's everyone doing? Uh, It's a loaded question. All right, we're going to get to lots of loaded questions today. That's a great segue, Kristen. I love it. Um, Kristen, you may remember, is a friend of mine, but also joined me last year on um, Career Changes, episode 31, Just Keep Swimming. Uh, Today, I'm being jovial, but we're going to get into some tough issues, tough questions as we talk about anti-racism and what that means. Um, It's showing up in different Places in the U.S. Uh, where Patrice and I are, and also in Canada where Kristen is. Um, so we're going to kind of define some things around. Uh, I guess language is kind of the way to get started a little bit. Maybe that's a good way to go. Um, Patrice had a good question about. I think it was the DEI, and do you
1: want to ask that question, Patrice? I do want to ask that question. Uh, so in a recent conversation, we were talking about holding a uh, workshop. And the discussion came around what to call the workshop. And there was a feeling in the community that calling it diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, um, it's no longer enough. We have been using that term for a while. We have been leading trainings and workshops um, under that term. And we're just not, we're not seeing systemic change. We're not moving the needle at all. Mm -hmm. And so there was a feeling of like, well, what should we like what terminology should we start to use should it be anti-racism or something else
2: yeah so it's such a good question patrice and and we are you know in the field talking quite a lot about what these terms mean and what they carry um and so i'm sort of less concerned about what the title of a workshop is although i know um you know, the intent of, of where that question comes from, but I'm more concerned about what the content is and what the approach is of that workshop. And so often we will hear a bit um, of, uh, you know, a curiosity as to what do you mean by diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging? Um, because we know that it's most comfortable to actually just sit with the diversity conversation or even the inclusion and belonging conversation. Um, and really the approach to this work is really like a continuum. And so the concept of, um, although we're getting away from it even more, thankfully, is the, you know the concept of multiculturalism and diversity is really just sort of, it's such a surface level. Um, And it doesn't get to any equitable outcomes. And so, you know, a really good kind of stereotypical example of that is just like the potluck. Like we're going to have a multicultural potluck or we're going to have a potluck celebrating Diwali or um, celebrating um, a a Polish Heritage Day. And so, you know, you bring samosas, I'll bring um, uh, pierogies, you know, and we'll all get along. And so um, it's, it can be offensive, even, that concept of just doing that and thinking that's all that needs to happen. And so when you hear kind of that resistance to that term, that's where that is, right? And so that, that at the beginning of that c- continuum is this sort of celebrating of diversity sort of concept. Um, and if you stop right there, you're not doing the work. And so then the next step would be really looking at things through inclusion, like whose voices are at the table, whose faces are represented. Is there um, inclusion in your hiring practices um, and, and who it is that belongs at your workplace? But know that if you are just doing diversity and inclusion, you're not actually getting into the disruption of the systems that made it inequitable in the first place. And so as you kind of go down that continuum of work, it really isn't until you get into the anti-work, the anti-racism, the anti-Black racism, the anti-oppression work, um, where that's a conscious um, approach to disrupting, interrupting, dismantling the practices that made them oppressive in the first place. And so sometimes when you're hearing that from the community, it's like, actually, the tough work is is towards the end of that continuum. And it comes with a real pedagogy and approach to doing that work. So um, if you have a workshop where it's got all that great content happening with different voices and approaches... I'm less concerned if it's called diversity, equity, and inclusion and belonging, but it needs to go so far below that surface.
0: Right. This is exactly why we wanted to talk to you, Kristen, on uh, an episode of Invito Fab, because you are such an educator. Um, an educator in many ways. That's her life. Like whatever she does, forget the title of her actual role and job, but she does education. Um, and I will put the caveat. This is uh, an episode that's going to, um, touch on ways to like educate, move you, and encourage you to take action. And I really thought it was important. Um, I know that we are three white women, so we are probably going to be talking to some other white women, white folks that listen. Um, I, we have a bit of audience that are a smattering of other pieces of our world, but I really thought it was important to um, have us do some of the work together. And I, I know, Kristen, that in your day job as a social worker um, you're doing a lot of training and education around this anti-racism really and equity and diversity and inclusion work um, that you do. But can we start like by unpacking it a few more um, definitions, like just to know what is showing up because there's a few things coming up in um, our media, our social media, our news feeds, and things like that around uh, the way we talk about um, equity and anti-racism for white people.
2: Um, So I guess I would just start with um, understanding that uh, as white people uh, attempting to do this work, there seems to be so much focus on what it is to be racialized or persons of color, or um, in particular, when, you know, the conversation is really being centered around what does it mean to be black in the United States? What does it mean to be black in Canada? And that's a really important conversation to be had. Um, But what is also just as important is really understanding what it is that, um, what, what does it mean to be white? in North America or in a Eurocentric system. And so we actually can't really do that anti-racism work if we don't actually do some real deep deconstruction of what it means to be white and whiteness and all the privileges that occur within that. So what often happens with white people, um, myself included, is that we're conditioned to not think about it, to not have to talk about it, to not have to even know what it is to be white and we'll talk we'll externalize ourselves from this as in like I I have nothing to do with any of this but we live in a world where people also don't look like me and so let's talk about that instead of let's actually talk about my own role in this and so the concept that we hear a lot is white privilege and really, that just means, and I didn't come up with the term, obviously, but it's it's like this invisible package or backpack um, that was sort of coined by Peggy McIntosh around these unearned assets, uh, things that have come with, with being white that I haven't had to earn, I haven't had to ask for, they just have arrived. They're like blank checks of privilege. And what is Uh, really important to differentiate, because people will often even just get uncomfortable with that definition itself, is that it it has nothing really to do with my class, or um, my orientation, my gender identity, or all those things intersect. But having white privilege doesn't mean that I haven't had hardships in my life or that I haven't had deep experiences with poverty or with disability or illness. It means that those hardships will have nothing to do with my race. And actually, my race of being white will likely have been buffers along the way. And so that's where that white privilege concept um, goes to. And it's so important to actually really understand other than just doing kind of a checklist, which is, which is important as well.
0: It's funny. I was in a conversation with a book club members that talked about, it would be nice to have just a checklist to go through and say, yep, I've done it and it's good. But we live in a society that um, you said it right. Like, as a white person, you don't think about uh, you being um, secondary or in the minority almost ever. It's a rarity, at least where we live. And um, as you know, Kristen, personally, I've been working through white supremacy, uh, literally, Me and White Supremacy, the book by Leila F. Syed. Yeah. And her book started as Instagram 28-day posts. And if you haven't got it, it's a great book to dig yeah. deep. Uh, I think you need more than 28 days. Um, it's a process to think about like have I had these other thoughts, and it's not just me showing up as a good white woman, um, a white person it's when where does it come from? What in my background shows up for me, and why do I expect the idea of um not that i 'm superior, but we have systems and institutions and policies that actually place me a white person above other people's needs um and that's the structure that we have sustained i was listening to code switch um the episode about karens and um how women you know the karens can call in a grocery store or in new york in the central park uh when a black man or someone's coming after them they trust the authorities or they know what's right um and the best karen that was talked about in the episode that i recently just watched was the elena from the hulu episodes uh little fires everywhere, but I like the book better personally, but um, all these Karens are out there. And I was like, how do we not have more of those white women in suburbia being a Karen? Because they just expect to be the ones that are right and have the privilege. And they're just below that patriarchal line, right? We're sustaining that patriarchy.
2: Yeah. And and you bring up a great point there, Laura, that reminds me that, you know, often we hear in these sorts of conversations, we hear that the system is broken and that we have to fix the system. And I would actually even push back on that notion because the system is actually doing exactly what it was intended to do. And so it is um, intended to represent us. It is designed for a white Eurocentric body to enter into that hospital or school system. Um, it's doing exactly what it's supposed to do. And it makes it a clear path for us to um, rise up as you're saying, right. For the promotions or um, the uh, spotlight to be on us for a voice of um, credential. And so that's actually, it's actually doing what it really is intended to do. And it also reminds me of what you, you sort of mentioned around your learning around the me and white supremacy, which is really like a workbook, which is wonderful. Is this again? I've mentioned this externalism. It's this concept of this good-bad binary that um, places me as a good person, and therefore, um, because we know that racism is bad, it it would mean that I'm not racist, right? So, by by virtue of just being a good person, absolves me from any kind of benefit to racism. Hopefully that makes sense, right? And so when we see the um, the uncoverings of racism in the broader public life, and really what it is doing is it's filming the surface level acts of racism, these overt acts of racism that horrify us, right? That we go, "Oh my goodness." I I would never do that. That's awful what that person just did to that store clerk, or what that woman at Central Park just, you know, picked up her cell phone to call the police. Like those are such overt acts of racism or and bias that I, I would never do that. So I'm gonna also film it, be horrified, place myself outside of that, and feel really good about myself. Right. And so what that does is it feeds into this very narrow concept of what racism is that it needs to be intentional individual and overt for it to occur right so it sees racism as an event versus a structure or a system and so that continues to place myself outside of benefiting from racism because oh, i yeah. never do those things right
0: yeah. And that's the, th- the thing that I think on the code switch Karen up. So they said it's, it's not those overt things. It's those covert things that we don't talk about, like getting to choose where you live impacts also where um, a child might go to school and get this education to um, just, there's just so many ways that there's like little bits and pieces that people say or hint at at work. Um, and I, I just, I think I've been blind to a lot of it. And it's like that. I think there is a chapter actually on, as I said, this white blindness, like you've just been accepting of that's how it is. Oh, they, I'm not sure why someone wouldn't feel comfortable at, in this office, or I would, I'm not sure why someone wouldn't apply for this job or I would like, there's like other things like um, why don't people, why do people segregate themselves at grocery stores or walking across the street or things we have built in to be afraid of other Mm -hmm. Um, that fear comes from something that we don't talk about and it's awkward and Discomfortable and I don't know I was just thinking back to like a lot of questions that patrice and I asked in The the unpacking privilege episode was like where does it come from as a kid? And I, I know that you've been thinking about this a bit patrice as well.
1: Yeah, I think A lot of it does have to do with place and where you grew up and also, you know one of the things that we've been talking about as a family as um, I can't remember was the name of the show 13 that had the um um it was about uh the war on drugs you know and how that came about and i think for a lot of us you know especially many years ago you only had access to a certain amount of information and people weren't walking around with cell phones and we had three news stations And if you heard on the news there was a war on drugs, it's a certain population, um, that's what you grew up believing and you didn't know anything different. So some of it also is realizing almost like part of what you've, you know, like the, the world that you grew up in was a little bit of a lie, you know, and so just relearning the story and the history and making sense of like, the values and beliefs that you developed growing up and trying to reshape them is a, is really a journey and takes, takes a lot of, you know, um, work and time to do. Yeah.
2: And and really we have been uh, as white people have been conditioned, uh, as I mentioned, like not to think about it, not to have to learn it. It's not been written in our history books because who writes history books? It's always through the lens of a victor. And so, it's almost like it's been a disservice because we have not been brought up having those conversations um you know I remember being brought up and and the only thing I can think of around race and racism was the concept of the n-word and that we don't say that and it's a harmful word and those words won't come out of your mouth in this family and and like that that's it Right. <laughs> Understanding the history and how it moves about and and uh, the concept of good and bad neighborhoods and kids to hang out with or not hang out with and what safety looks like. And, and even Canada's own history um, around anti-Black racism in particular, Canadians don't, don't know our own history or don't like to talk about it. And so we love, it's a broader form of externalism where we love to talk about our neighbors to the South as having all these sorts of problems around race. And we sort of sit on our laurels going like, well, we don't have that problem when we know that that isn't true. Um, and so I, I think about that as well. And um I go back to a little bit of that concept of the white blindness, Uh, you know, I have a family member who works for a large corporation. And of course, lots of stuff have bubbled to the surface over the past couple months, because all of a sudden people are talking about it um, in ways that either they're ill-equipped Or aren't used to having those conversations. And so there's, there was, I guess, a training, (laughs) a a workshop from a guest speaker. um, And that family member, you know, was, was very excited to take part in it and, and appreciating the learning opportunity and admitted after that they were shocked with the examples of the microaggressions or the things that occur in a workplace, um, everything from the, you know, your food smells, don't microwave it here. Um, all these microaggressions and that family member was going, what? That happens? How does that happen? Right? It's like this blissful shock to it and going, yeah, it, it, it happens. And and so if you're not privy to that, you can walk around the world not having to confront that at all. And, and that's the biggest piece around deconstructing our own whiteness is that it affords us an opportunity not to talk about it, not to think about it and not have to navigate it.
0: Yeah, I would agree. And we, we do this all the time. Like what's quote unquote professional and work, whether it's wear or hair, mm-hmm. what you look like. Um, and we only get to, I like how you said earlier, we only get to surfacing the surfacing conversations of uh, not asking really what's wrong. And our coworkers that often, um, I will say, um, don't actually express how they're feeling because they've learned to put up a wall. So our BIPOC friends, our black, indigenous, people of color have been like, oh, it's fine. Things are great. And they're not going to open up to you if you aren't actually opening up to them about things and asking them real questions. And, and maybe talking about really uncomfortable topics that never really get talked about. Just having to go through the world in such a different way and carry yourself both as a presence, um, being aware of where you are a lot is an, is an also brought up and I, it's things that, yeah, do people take for granted going out for a walk or run somewhere or showing up to a new place and seeing if they fit in there or not.
1: Yeah. And I think the culture at work as well, this is true. Um, We, we had, um, a session recently where, you know, there was space to talk about some of these things. And one of the participants who, of course, we were in breakout rooms um, on Zoom. Um, But one of the people that was in my breakout room was talking about, um, you know, he's from Santa Domingo, and he talked about how long it took to really um, understand the culture of the workplace and the nuances and the expectations around communication um, and what was like appropriate and not appropriate and how how different it was from like his own lived experiences and that kind of code switching but also um, it's just like that added layer of work right that people have to do every day when they show up that I think many of us, you know, similar to what you were saying, like many of us don't think about just that added layer of stress of just showing up to work and being in the office and interacting and, you know, shifting back and forth between, you know, almost two different cultures.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, and, and we see that in particular in um, helping professions, in particular in my field of, of social work. And so the added um, weight that black indigenous people of color carry in actually just doing their jobs. And so what does it look like when they are um, working with communities that represent them? in a system that has over surveilled them or not helped them or has had disproportionate consequences for them. How do they navigate that in their workplace, but also as a culture of a workplace, as you say, Patrice, um, that when I am hired at a new workplace, people look like me. I, I automatically assume that I fit maybe ignorantly or not, but I automatically assume that I will be a fit. For it, and I will not have to navigate all those things in my daily workplace to ensure that I'm okay and that I will be seen to be a positive uh, employee.
0: Yeah, the other concept that comes up, and it's been kind of wild to see um, how much uh, book, book purchasing and anti-racism reading has gone up. I am grateful for, you know, How to Be an Anti-Racist by uh, Ken Day and also Robin DiAngelo's book on uh, white fragility is being purchased, read, whatever, in my feeds. I see in on Instagram and Twitter. People are talking more about it. Um, but some of the stuff that we have to realize is like confronting being racist. And you said it, Kristen, like racism exists in every country. It looks different. Um, In America, we're overt about it. Uh, We put out there, we are racist. And uh, it's weird, but I also kind of like that as being a dual citizen, I can say um, I'm actually okay that we're talking about it. And there was some unrest and there was some anger and there was some protest and movement because I'm hoping that it's not more than just talk in education these days and are there ways that you're kind of encouraging um whether it's in, within a workshop or an education session or just in conversation with folks that you're pushing people to um I think you talk about this uh, like equity and shape and race like do you want to share a little bit about that
2: oh so so what I guess it sort of occurred to me this year and I have been you know, doing educating work around equity and race equity for years now, but it just sort of occurred to me because, well, first of all, I'm, I'm still on a lifelong journey. It doesn't end. Once I get into an educator role, I'm constantly in recovery of my own whiteness. Um, But it occurred to me as these conversations are bubbling up to the surface in, in, in very profound ways in public spaces that a lot of people, at least in my experience, a lot of people are ill-equipped to have the conversation or not used to having the conversation. And that, again, is a white privilege piece, right, where you haven't had to have this conversation in your life, in your work, in your family. Um, and so you're out of shape. So I'll, I, I just sort of, it was on a whim. I used that analogy, but it seems to land with some people is that you're out of shape. You, you've just bought the gym membership and that's all it is. And so now you're showing up to these conversations and you're realizing, oh my goodness, first of all, I'm not really sure how to contribute. Um, It feels icky. And so that's a bit of that white fragility stuff. Like, why am I feeling so uncomfortable? Why am I going red in the face? Why am I wanting to get out of this conversation and sign off on this Zoom chat? Um, Because we, we have not been conditioned to have these conversations. And so you're out of shape. So you, it's like you've shown up to the gym for the first time and you've been told, okay, now you're going to lift 100 pounds. Your form is probably off. You're uncomfortable and you're going to be sore the next day likely. And if you had only done it once, it won't have any impact on any outcome or life expectancy, right? So you'll need to kind of get comfortable. That's my biggest piece of advice that I give people who haven't had these conversations before or are wanting to start it is a couple things. One, know that it's a journey of the self. It, it's going to have to be work on your own self and what your own biases are and what your own unlearning will have to be. And then understanding you're going to have to get into this as, as a regular conscious, uncomfortable process in your circles and with your families at your workplace your neighbors, if you have a relationship with them and having these conversations, but not from a place that you're asking anyone who is black, uh, indigenous or of color or racialized. We say in some spaces in Canada um, for you to teach me. And so that I go back to that extra burden that people of color will be carrying in all their spaces. And so I'm hearing the exhaustion from, um, from people of color that are in my own circles going like, I'm just so exhausted. I'm having to navigate these conversations with everyone now. And so if I go back to what it, what it means to be white in this conversation of race dialogue, you're going to have to get into shape and and to have those conversations ongoing.
0: Well, Kristen, I'm glad that you brought up the workouts idea and gain back in mm-hmm. shape because I put on some pandemic pounds, but we put on many Pounds and we, you're right, we've not worked the muscles to learn about what it means to sit in ugly discomfort. And as we do the work, I don't want to say that. It's really hard though. Like, I feel like I'm examining who are in my friend's circle, uh, who's in my work circle, who do I talk to about these conversations. And I'm not going to like preach them, like you said, but there are some people that I think that might avoid me now. Is this like the case?
2: <laughs> yes, welcome <laughs> uh, okay, so is this true like you almost I've like, invited less and less to things
0: <laughs> <laughs> Oh, it's hard because I have people in my life that I feel like are gonna just tune me out now and I won't say they're blocking me anywhere just yet on, <laughs> online but that that happens right?
2: It happens and I, I mean I guess I would just suggest that um this you know, I, I, it's such a cliche, but I I say it often, it's a lifelong journey. And so, um, for those that are raring to go in 2020 on this conversation of race or your, you've amplified your commitment, which is needed and we want that, but not everyone is on that same trajectory uh, as you are, or I am, or Patrice. And that, um, You're going to have to figure out what that pace looks like, first of all, for your own well-being, because you will burn yourself out from 24-7 having conversations about race. Um, And you will have to figure out who your audience is in that moment where there's sort of like a, a gift from the universe as an opportunity to break down something or to have a conversation. So when I say by know your audience being that, you know, if it's the Thanksgiving dinner table and you have, you know, a relative, uh, sometimes the the, the the uncle thing gets the bad rap, but so I'll say like a cousin sitting across from you, who is like, what's with all this talk about race? Or this is this is overblown, or I don't, I think we've made such huge progress, like you that we've come a long way kind of person. Um, or or so says something, you know, overtly offensive. So it's like know your place and audience. So do you really want to unpack this tough conversation about race and racism at the Thanksgiving dinner table? And it's okay to pause that. It's okay to say, I'm gonna come back to you. Or let's chat, let's chat later. I'd love to learn more about that. Um, and then also know your audience. So especially for those who kind of uh, situate ourselves within academic fields, you know, coming at someone with y- you know, your, your thesis from your grad work on intersectional feminism or critical race theory you know, is not going to land well <laughs> with the person that's not even drinking the Kool-Aid yet. Like they're not even wanting to get go on the journey. You're not gonna get them onto the journey by coming at them at a language that they um, will resist. And so it's figuring out. It, it's like not only is it getting into shape around conversations of race and racism. It's almost like getting multilingual. So figuring out where that person sees the world, like if they're, if they're telling you, you know, I, I saw this on Fox news or etc etc you know, it, it could be like, wow, it sounds like you watch a lot of media. Like you, you're really interested in something here. Like, tell me about where that comes from. Or if somebody keeps telling you something that you know, not to be true, it, it could be a response of, um, wow. Like, have you experienced this personally? Like what, where do you come at this? opinion, I'd love to know more. And I'm not necessarily talking about just being like nice versus not nice about the conversation, but figuring out where it is that that person sees themselves in this conversation. um, And know that you it is not going to be this Barack Obama mic drop moment. (laughs) I usually will say that in in circles of facilitation where people are like, I don't want to Say the wrong thing, so therefore, I've decided I'm gonna say nothing. Um, And I don't know anyone who's racialized who has asked us to say nothing. You know, most people that I work with who are racialized will say, actually, I would prefer for you to interrupt that imperfectly versus say nothing, because it's complicit when you say nothing. Um, But we seem to have gotten into this thing where we need to have this incredible 30 second mic drop moment in order to be able to include ourselves in a conversation. And, and it's rarely, if ever going to be like that.
0: It's funny you say that. Um, that's exactly what I've So I just talked to one of my white friends um, from New York had lived in Chicago, well-educated, probably like a ma- double masters almost now. Um, her and I had a conversation about what is abolish the police. And she asked like, Oh, what can I say to get back to respond and make a really good comeback? It's not a, back and forth debates, or I ask questions, like you said, like, where did you learn that? Or what has been your experience from um, being pulled over by a cop? Were you in fear? And did you think this this could be the end of your life? And so I've just tried to think about questions to ask to put myself or to put someone else in another person's shoes and how would they react or think or feel to get some empathy? You're right, you have to know where people are at, to engage them because there is this, um, and you've said this, like calling out versus calling in culture, like and cancel culture these days, like people are really afraid to make mistakes. And I have to remind myself, I love that we have representation of higher ed, social work and industry. I think multiple sectors are still trying to figure this out and it's not going to be perfect or right, regardless of where we sit. And I think people are afraid of making a mistake and not knowing what to say and flubbing up. Might actually say nothing at all.
2: Right. And and we know that, across every field, there is discomfort around conversations around race in particular, and how quickly, especially in circles with white women, we will immediately go to conversations around sexism and gender. Um, And so we will do everything we can to not have the conversation around race. And you know, Robin D'Angelo writes about this and speaks about this often around the concept of the white progressive. So, uh, you know, in the United States, the Democrat voting or the Bernie supporter,
0: even PR tote bag holding, you know who you are. (laughs) I might be one of those as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
2: Right. Like, like, yeah, like in Canada, like the CBC watching or the NPR consuming, um, you know, and and she sort of makes jokes where people will say like, well, no, I'm not racist. Like I ride a bicycle to work Um, or like I'm a vegetarian Um, or I vote Democrat, or in Canada, I vote NDP, or, you know, so I must not be racist. And so again, it goes back to that good, bad binary, right? Um, And so even in the field of social work, we know that we do damage, and that we have racial bias, and that we have racist policies in spaces. And it's a field that one of the key pillars is social justice. So, (laughs) if it's happening in social work, it's happening in every other field. Well, the conversations should be happening, right? But we know that um, these are systems and structures that are founded on white supremacy. And that's a scary term for a lot of people to kind of um, accept. But I go back to, it was designed for white
1: people. All of these systems and institutions were. Yeah, I think... You know, one of the other things I was thinking about when you were talking about um, sharing like at the Thanksgiving table or, you know, getting in these conversations Mm -hmm. that, you know, like I've talked with my own um, family about is um, making sure you really understand what you're talking about. And so, for example, if you're going to say defund the police because it sounds right because you hear everybody talking about it, you need to be able to defend your position and make sure that you understand like what you know what that really means so that if you do get into a conversation with someone about that you can have an effective discussion about it and you know and make and make your case and I think the other thing I was thinking about when you were talking is that there is definitely a sense of like not wanting to do harm right and so being afraid to say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing. And so there is definitely this um, space of discomfort that we are all, or many of us are trying to navigate. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And and you know what? I join you in that. Like I, I, I do this work (laughs) for a living and I have been for some time and I make all sorts of mistakes. I stumble upon my own whiteness all the time. And so it, it's being careful that knowing that sometimes you're fumbling and stumbling could could harm somebody else or hurt somebody else, right? And that's likely not what we want to do. But the alternative is silence. And we know that that does great harm as well.
0: Yeah, I think that's what I've been thinking a lot more these days and moving from um, kind of educating, because I think you've said this and other people I've been reading have said like education, uh, um, empathy means something, but then you have to take it towards something Um, and that's action for me. And I have probably been more white silent on spaces where I could be more vocal and I think... um, I think my I've been reflecting my remoteness in life in general, um, and being not bringing up these issues, and I never really thought about it because I do have some platforms that I can talk on, whether it's just Instagram or Twitter or my blog or this podcast. And I've been kind of like digging deep and going, uh, "Why aren't we going beyond uh, any binaries and those weird gray spaces and getting you know getting into the muck, as they say?" Um, and so when I started putting out some just calls to action on different issues and ideas, it's been impressive to hear from so many people in my DMS and like the back channels of, of Instagram to, um, I don't look, I don't really care about praise. I want them to know that they're reading it and that they're helping to be informed. And that's why some people have reached out to me, which has been interesting. But I also think about where I put my money these days and how I want to spend mm-hmm. it. So when I buy books, I go to a bookshop that supports independent bookstores like Edna's that's in South Dallas. Or I think about buying black-owned items and supporting restaurants that are black-owned. I'm thinking about... Um, finding other kind of local businesses that I really want to support with people of color or indigenous. So I'm trying to think about, I'm not out protesting in the streets these days. Uh, Cause I believe there still is a pandemic and it's not political. I believe in science. Uh, so I am thinking about other ways I can do some of the actual action and get involved. And that's encouraging people to vote and getting people signed up to vote. It's um, I don't know, like are there other things you're encouraging or thinking about doing either one of you really that's, um, takes these sort of lessons and trainings and education, but puts it into what you do going forward.
1: So I was just, one of the things that that um, made me think about is not a specific action that I'm taking, but one of the things that we were talking about was um, so here in the U S ice was rescinded and that was um, that was a result of if international students were going to be attending a fully online program, because many universities have made the decision that it's not safe to be residential and so they're going fully online, that they were going to have to leave the US, um, which would result in, I think, 30,000 international students having to leave. And there was a sense that the response to that was almost immediate like, this is wrong. We need to do something about that. And within like days, you know, we were in court about it, um, as opposed to police brutality, where it seemed like it took a little bit longer to really think about like, well, how do we want to react to this? What do we want to do about it? Mm -hmm. Um, And so thinking about that, I would just, you know, thinking about like how we do react and the actions we take and how that relates to things like our pocketbook, for example, um, I would, I'd love to dig into that a little bit. Yeah,
2: I mean, you bring up such a great example of what happens when people are outraged and what can actually happen in moving a a collective resistance forward when when the dominance is also outraged too. So, you know, sitting from my, you know, little Canadian space here, not as um, familiar with the media story of, of what has occurred with ICE, although I, I am somewhat aware and knowing that it's having implications in Canada as well. And so when we think of the concept of international students, there are a lot of white international students coming from European countries, and all of a sudden they they are being, you know, in lack of a better term, like deported to their country. And so people are outraged. And it also is really connected to the economy and capitalism, that that's a lot of money now, that's uh, in question, as to where large institutions have, have benefited from. And so it also, you know, I am compelled to to look at that through an anti-racism lens, too, around what identity looks like and who is assumed to belong. We go back to that title of that workshop, right, of belonging, and who is assumed to be an American citizen or welcome in a space and who isn't. And when that blanket approach happens with no matter what you look like, um, you're all going. Although it would be interesting to see how that's enforced and who is being enforced quicker than others. But when that blanket approach is happening where everyone's going now, you're all out because of this pandemic, um, the outrage that will happen so quickly and the instit- we will use these institutions um, or systems of consequence, like the court system to help us out here. And so how quickly that may happen or get reversed, I don't know. Um, is interesting when the dominance gets
1: implicated as well. Yeah. And actually it was reversed. And I think they didn't even, I think they were like ready to open in court and it was rescinded, which of course everyone was happy about, but it was also a quick turnaround. Mm-hmm. And I'm
2: reminded um, of just a new story that came out. I, I just saw today in Canada of a student in New Brunswick that is a Canadian citizen and has a Chinese last name and has been charged international tuition fees, which we know are are much higher than a domestic tuition fee and is, you know, in, in the article she, she said, I actually just thought it was an administrative error and I just sort of ignored it for a bit and just waited for them to correct themselves. And it still isn't. And she's having to fight this and prove her citizenship. And so That likely won't happen for me with a Eurocentric last name and with a white face. So likely I will never have to be asked if I truly am a Canadian citizen, aside from quickly showing my passport at the border. Um, And I will never be questioned as to whether or not I belong in this country.
0: So um, this episode is probably the start of where we'll probably infuse these conversations. And we might ask like some Awkward conversations ever sell sometimes, Patrice. I'm getting ready for it uh, because I feel like it's something that you said it best, Kristen. It's ongoing work, and whether you're going to call it allyship, advocacy, and whatever you're doing, it's got to be continual. And it's not just a like a T-shirt you have, and you don't get a you don't get an award for doing this. Sometimes you get shit on, is what we we're going to say. So um, I really want to know if there's other ways that we could um move beyond it and if you have suggestions or thoughts as listeners or what you're doing to work on this, please let us know. Um tweet at us, send us a message on Instagram, email us. If you want us to dig into certain topics, we'd love to. Um, so this is just the start of this kind of race injustice, social justice, equity. Mission and um, and we hope to continue more. Before we wrap up though, I, I do want to end with some rapid fire for Kristen because she's a guest. You ready for it, Kristen? Yeah. We, you're afraid of this, aren't you? <laughs> a little. Okay, so, good. I'll do the best I can. <laughs> okay, so yeah, I just wanted to do a rapid fire with guests just to mix it up a little. All yeah, right. No, appreciate it. <laughs> uh, confronting white privileges.
2: Asking what you're willing to give up.
0: You know, you're doing the work when? The Dominance is Uncomfortable with You. (laughs) Oh, God. Okay, great. What's one book you recommend listeners get started with? Well, there's
2: many, but uh, I think of Ijoma Luo of So You Want to Talk About Race. Hey,
0: she's a a Seattleite.
2: Yeah, and I think for a Canadian one, um, The Skin We're In by Desmond Cole.
0: Okay, great. We'll put links to those in the show notes. Is there a TV show, podcast, or film you suggest for our non-readers, let's say?
2: So uh, I think a couple from actually both a Canadian and a bit of an American context is Sandy and Nora talk politics. Sandy Hudson is a co-founder of the Black Lives Matter movement in Toronto, but is based in California right now. And Nora Loretto is an activist in Quebec. Cool. Cool. I actually also would recommend Little Fires Everywhere as a series, and I know um, you've read the book, Laura, and and think it's it's better. I need to actually read the book, but um, just for the nature of what microaggressions look like and how they are impacted in what looks like a white progressive society, um, yeah, it's, it's quite true. well done. It's quite well done, that series with Kerry Washington and Reese Witherspoon.
0: No, it's true. And I will say, I had listened to those two, Kerry and Reese, on um, Unlocking Us podcast. And she also had Celeste, the author, on. um, And I just enjoyed the book more so because it was was 90s racism. We know it was, which is still like today's racism. But Mm -hmm. it was Mm -hmm. set in the 90s. And it was interesting. Yeah. Um, All right. Uh, What's one thing you'd ask us white folks to reflect on now?
2: Ask yourself the first time you knew you were white.
0: Hmm, that's a good question.
2: A little bit of a trick question, but sit with that.
0: <laughs> I will. Okay. Um, and then this is a lot of work. So how do you take care of yourself uh, to do this kind of emotional labor? Really.
2: Uh, I mean, I guess a, a couple things. One is that knowing that really it's about choice. That if I want to, I can. I can t- take it off. I. I can. I can turn it off, and I don't have to have that conversation at dinner time with white family members. So knowing that it comes with a lot of privilege, but because I do it on a daily basis and that's a conscious choice in my personal and professional life. um, For me, what's been helpful is emotional intelligence coaching, knowing that I don't have to be the hero or the rescuer to the work every day and that I don't own it alone.
0: Good call. Um, And then two questions. What are you reading right now? Because we're a book about stories. So I know you're reading, so.
2: What I'm actually reading, um, I, I stopped it and then it came back to it, is Alicia Keys' la- latest memoir, which I'm loving. And I just finished An American Marriage by Tayari Jones.
0: Ooh, that's on my library order list. Good. That's good. Okay. And then what's in your wine glass? Because I know you drink wine as well.
2: Oh, anything these days. <laughs> It, that takes us back to the previous question. Um I'm thinking of a decent pinot noir from Oregon. I I like uh I like west coast pinot noirs.
0: Oregon, I love the Willamette Valley. Um cool. Well, thank you for joining us Kristen and being so candid and um honest and real with us. We appreciate that.
1: It's a pleasure. I I, I love chatting with you guys. It was really helpful talking to you. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you. To catch the next episode, be sure to subscribe to InVenoFab wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at InVenoFab and we'll always welcome comments and messages sent by tweet, private message, or email at InVenoFabulum at gmail.com. Cheers. Cheers.